from St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. You know, Paul can sometimes be a little tricky to read. You read these words on a page, and it sometimes seems like, what's he driving at here? What's the, what's the big point? What's, what's, what's the message Paul's trying to give us? And what he's actually doing is answering a question which you have all asked in your own heart, which is this. You ready? Why do bad things happen to good people? Ever ask yourself that question, anybody? No, nobody ever did, right? It is the biggest, when I was a young man, 23 years old, 24, it was a question which really haunted me. And the reason you ask the question is simply this, that if God is good and omniscient, meaning he knows everything, and he's everywhere, omnipresent, and he, has, but he, and he also loves us, and he's good, and we are not just cosmic slime, but in fact his children, then how in the world do bad things happen to good people? You ever wonder that? Lots of people do. There's a problem with that question. And Paul actually, in Ephesians 2, and I'll show you how, he reframes the whole thought, and here's why. Here's, here's the under, whenever you ask a question about something, you've got to understand the assumptions that you make. And here's what I mean. When we say, why do bad things happen to good people? What we're really saying is this, that when we're born, we have a series of pluses and minuses, good and bad, right? And if our goods outweigh our bads, then bam, we get to go to heaven. And if our bads are more, then down we go. No, seriously, most people, in fact, the entire culture, every, all your non-believing friends, and before you were a believer, you probably believed this too, thought that God rewards that the way what our our salvation is contingent upon what we do. In other words, most of us have a view of God as sort of this meritorious judge, right? That he, he sort of lays out the demerits and the pluses, and if you, you know, you, you get a 75 on your, you get a 70, right? Then you pass, and then you get. And that's why we say, that's why we can't in our minds say, well, if God is good and holy and just, why do bad things happen to good people? Because after all, they're good people. They deserve it. Paul, I want to challenge you this morning to see, in it, see the question in a different way. Because if you don't understand this, Christianity will make no sense to you at all. Paul lays out a Christian worldview in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says things like, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I'm going to lay out for you the Christian view of sin and redemption. This is a big topic. And why, in fact, bad things happen to good people. And I want to challenge you with this. When I end this sermon, I hope you ask yourself this question. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's the question. So three points this morning. I want to talk about with Paul and this Ephesians chapter, which is great stuff. It's a little dense, but not terribly. I'll show you. Three points that Paul makes, right? First is the bondage of sin and its cause. What is, what is being bonded, enslaved to sin, and what, what causes it? Secondly, the amazing grace of God that redeems us, and finally, our life as an example and witness works, right? So well, what, is, what, is the, what does it mean to be bound by sin, and what's causing it all? 
What does it mean to talk about the amazing grace of God, which is huge? And finally, now what? What do you do? So first thing I want to look at, again, if we're going to understand why do bad things happen, not just to good people, but at all, right? Why do bad things happen? The bondage of sin and its cause. Paul lays out the situation. Paul, like me, is a pastor, right? And so his major concern is for the welfare of his people, that they understand their own heart, their lives, they understand God, and can live appropriately in that world. Paul says this. He lays it out, right? Open kimono, as we used to say. He says, you were dead in your, you, and that, there, that you is second person plural. He's talking to Christians. Y'all were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Stop there. Notice what he's saying. He's talking to people who have become Christians. And he says, look, before you became a believer, you were dead. D-E-A-D, in your trespasses and sins. Which means that being dead in trespasses and sins is a universal condition. We, we, are, not, we are not born a blank slate. It's an old expression. I think it was Rousseau, might not have been, a 19th century uh, Victorian Enlightenment humanist who said, he had just came up with this idea of the tabula rasa, right? And a lot of us believe this, if we don't think about it for a second, that we're born a gurgling little bundle of just blank, right? And that little baby, that blank slate comes into this world, and between his nature and his nurture and the bad and the good that happens to him, then you get either Mother Teresa or an axe murderer. Seriously, I'm extreme on purpose. My point is, though, we, we believe that, and it's not true. If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand the Bible, you've got to understand that we were not born a blank slate. On the contrary, Paul says you were born dead in your sins. You were, bound, you were born bound to sin. Let me give you a uh, kind of humorous example. You'll see my point. I have a good friend of mine. His name is Jake Worley. He's now a priest. Um, almost became a bishop in Canada up until they figured out that he was actually believed all this stuff. Um, but <laughs> it's true. His kids were a little bit older than mine, and they were great kids. He, as a seminary uh, uh, colleague of mine, his kids were polite, they were respectful, they were confident, they were just good kids. And I said to him once, I said, Jake, I said, uh, how do you raise such good kids? What's the secret? And he said, simple. They're sinners. I thought it was kind of funny, actually, at the time. They remember, he said, remember that your children are sinners. Now, that is not what, expect, what I expected him to say, I will confess to you. But it was some of the best parenting advice I've ever gotten in my entire life. Think about, think about it. Think about it like this. Where will you meet the most self-centered, self-focused, never satisfied, demanding, obnoxious people in the world. Where do you meet them? Hollywood? Maybe. Millennials at Starbucks? Maybe. But you want to walk into a room filled with them from head to toe? Go to the maternity ward. I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm being, well, I'm joking, but it's serious. Babies. Babies are the most self-centered narcissistic, demanding people you'll ever meet. Imagine if as a grown 52-year-old man, I cried when I was hungry, and I demanded instant gratification at all times, that the world was at my beck and call. Think about it. We are not born a blank slate, are we? No, no, no. In fact, we are born sinners. 
Self-centered, self-focused. And a good parent, come back to Father Rowley's point, a good parent knows it's about his children. And if he's a good parent or woman, he or she, they also know it about themselves too, that they're sinners also. So we're all kind of in this stew together. What makes a good parent a good parent is that you understand that your children are struggling against the same things that you are. They're sinners, man, and so are you. And a good parent's job is to teach their children how to wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul says this, right? His worldview says, y'all were dead in your sins. It's a diagnosis. And if you read Paul with a pointed finger, then you're going to miss his whole point. He is not saying he's holier than thou. He is diagnosing the problem, which we, if you just stop and think about it for a minute, we all know is true. That from the very beginning, from day one, you and I were dead in our sins. And then he goes on a little further. It's not just an internal dynamic here. It's not just that we're born fallen. I mean, it is that. But he also says this. I want to show it to you. He says, you are following the course of this world. As you get older, right, you're a grown-up, you do adult things, and you do things like everybody else does until you become a Christian. Following the course of this world, living like everybody else, and he says, following the princes of the power of the air. Let me, let me just explain what he means by that briefly. Here's the thing, and I said this back in Lent 1, we're not just born fallen sinners, we are. We are also in a war. We are in a war against evil. We wrestle, Paul says later in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, our own and other flesh and blood, by the way. Paul writes, we wrestle against principalities and powers. What are these things? Demons. So the Christian walk, life on this world, according to Scripture, is not a blank slate. It is not some sort of ephemeral kind of garden that we just sort of make. No, we are in a war, man, both inside and externally. And if you don't understand that, Christianity will never make any sense to you at all. Paul says, before we became Christians, before you, and I, God knows before I did, before I became a Christian, I was enslaved to my own will and enslaved to the powers of this world. Friends, these evil forces, these spirits, these demons, these fallen angels, it's all the same thing. They are willful and they're organized. Let me give you an example. Anybody here remember January the 6th? Kind of big news, right? The Capitol building and all that stuff. The Capitol building was overrun. And if you watch the commentators on the news, it was a vast right-wing Nazi conspiracy. I will say, that dude in the Viking helmet, I thought was hilarious. I, have to, I will be honest with you. I mean, maybe it's my sense of humor. I got a little bit of a dark sense of humor. But I saw a guy in a Viking helmet. I know nothing about him. He's a little strange, obviously. But I thought, man, just, that's just funny. I don't know. But anyhow. There was speculation about this vast right-wing coup, right? That there was a scheme to overthrow the government, that the Proud Boys, wherever they are, and this whole cadre of, of evil, conservative nasties were going to overthrow the whole show. Or, to take the other side of the... Uh, I always do politics on both sides of the coin here. The other angle was that people were convinced that the election was rigged, that George Soros and his band of lefty commies were a part of a vast left-wing conspiracy to overthrow and destroy America. Now, I'm going to say this. I don't know if it was a Nazi conspiracy or a commie conspiracy. I don't know. I don't know the answer to those questions. But I do know this, that there's an enemy behind all of it. 
The princes of the powers of the air, demons, Satan, behind all of it. They are real. They are organized. They are influential. They are behind it. And Paul says, we, you and I, are enslaved and controlled by them. That's the first thing I want you to see as we move on to the solution. That, friends, we are in bondage to sin. We are born sinners, and we are in a world with evil arrayed against us. And as a consequence, Paul says in verse 4, that by nature, by nature, we are children of wrath like everybody else. Basically, you're hosed. That's a Canadian term. I heard a Canadian laugh over there. We're doomed. We are hellbound, Paul says. Again, he's not pointing fingers. He's, just, he's explaining the world. It's a diagnostic. You are doomed, hellbound. Verse 4, listen. But God. Second point, the amazing grace that saved us. Paul says that we were all children of wrath, like everybody else. But God, listen to that, but God. Who, who, who changes the situation? Who looks at our plight and goes, man, these guys are hosed. I'm going to do something about it. But God, in his mercy, Paul says, made us alive with Christ. And he continues later on, Paul says, by grace, by grace, you have been saved. I've said this before. When my daughter Grace was five, I was the rector of Trinity Church in Red Bank, New Jersey. If you've heard this story before, forgive me, but it's a good one. And uh, we, had, we sang Amazing Grace on the way out. I mentioned her in a sermon. We sang Amazing Grace on the way out of church. And as I was walking out of the church, I saw her standing on the pew like this, just all frustrated because she's a sinner. And, uh, and uh, she's in the nursery too, so I'm going to get away with it today. Uh, and I came out and she says, Mommy, I can't believe it. First daddy preaches about me, and then he writes a song about me. <laughs> Amazing grace. What does that actually mean? We sing that song, Amazing Grace. You know, go back and read the words again, man. It's profound. I'm not crazy about that hymn, but I love the words. By grace, Paul says, you have been saved. What does that mean? It's the center to all of Christianity. I think I've you know, the point of what word grace, the word grace is a Greek word, and it means, it doesn't mean you're, you know, elegant or somehow well-behaved, no. It's a Greek word, charis, and it means, it's hard to translate, it's got a pretty broad meaning, but it means something like an undeserved gift or unmerited favor. A, a, colloquial, way to look, a colloquial way to look at grace is to say it's something that you get that you did not deserve or earn, but that God gives it to you. Why? Paul says, because he loves you. You and I, and Grace, my daughter, are saved by grace, Caris. It's an undeserved, unmerited gift given to you by God, which you did not earn, friends, neither did I, and you do not deserve, and God knows, neither do I. But God, but God, verse 4, in his mercy, gives it to us. You know, that hymn, Amazing Grace, if you don't know it, was written by a guy named John Newton. John Newton was a uh, 18th century, uh, I think so, 18th century slave trader. So he would buy and sell people. It's kind of a bad thing. He was an English, John Newton was an English slave trader until later on he realized what he was doing was wrong. He was convicted by the Holy Spirit and other Christians around him and he realized that he was a sinner, that he was evil, and he also realized, but God. 
God in his mercy offered Newton the way out, offered him the grace to be saved by Jesus' death on the cross in John Newton's place and in mine. Amazing grace. Read it again. Amazing grace that hymn is written by a man when he is converted to Christianity after he'd been a slave trader. He became a priest later, actually. And he says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Where, friends, this is about, this is about you now, where were you lost? Where were you blind? Where were you when you finally realized that you could not save yourself? And more importantly, that you didn't have to. Where were, were you when you finally realized, man, I am a mess. I'm a mess. Maybe not, I mean, maybe not as bad as that guy, right? That's the famous Pharisee in the temple. But no, I, I am broken, I'm fallen, and I can't get up, right? To use that old commercial. Where were you when you realized, and then you got the idea that Christ has saved you anyway. Amazing grace indeed. And Paul says, and here's the deal, you were saved by grace. Paul says why? Listen, he says, so that no one can boast. This is not your own doing. This is a free gift from God who loves you and came to earth and died on the cross to save you. Not because you've earned it, or deserved it, not because your pluses outweigh your minuses, but simply because God is good, and his grace is amazing. And how many of us rely on other things to prove ourselves? We all do it. Our work, our career, our kids, our marriage. We make those things the things upon which we base our, our goodness. Put that away, man. Those are good things, but they won't save you. And if you think they will save you, you'll crush them in the process. If you think your kids are going to make you, are going to be the ones that save you, you will destroy them because they'll never own up to it. They'll never do what you want them to do. They'll never be perfect. Don't put them in the place of God. Let God's grace be grace in you. First, so this is my point, friends. If you want to understand this Christianity thing, you've got to understand, first of all, that we are all slaves, enslaved by sin, in bondage to evil, controlled by it. But God, in his mercy, offers the solution and the grace of Jesus Christ on his death on the cross to pay for your sins and mine, which are legion. My, finally point, my final point then is if that's true, well then what do we do? You know, point number three here is that salvation, that our salvation is a witness. If we are saved and accepted the grace of God, our salvation is a witness and an example. I'm finishing up a book right now. I've, I've been this has taken me a long time to read. I don't know why, but I'm just lazy, I guess, because I'm a sinner. But um, it's always that, right? I've been reading this book by N.T. Wright called Paul, A Biography. It's a really good book, and I'm just about finished. And he makes a comment about Paul, this text in Ephesians. And he writes on page 420. I know some of you are reading the book as well. On page 420, um, N.T. Wright says the following. He says that through the gospel and spirit... He, God, is now putting people right so that they, you, can be both an example of what the gospel does and agents of further transformation in his world. What does that all mean? It means simply this, that when you realize that you've been saved by grace, amazing grace, you become a person that can now go into the world and be a witness and example to others. Because I got news for you. 
And it's not news because you know this already. We live in a world that knows that things are broken. We know we live in a world where everybody knows that there's political injustice, political corruption. We know we live in a world where we know that power is wielded by people who have it against those who don't. We live in a world in which every person which you know knows deep down inside that something isn't right with the world and something isn't right with them. And frankly, the only way they're going to ever know is for you to show them. Your kids, your golf buddies, the friends you drink beer with at the walking tree, for example. <laughs> Whatever, you know, they all know that things, that things are not right with the world. They know it. And you did once too, and you still do, but you also know the solution. We know, friends, we know as Christians that we were once blind and now we see. Right? I want you to be an example. I want you in this land to do two things. I want you to examine your own heart, to throw yourself on the grace and mercy of God because it's the only thing that can save you. And quite frankly, it's the only thing which makes the world make any sense in the first place. I want you to be an example of a person who knows they've been saved by grace, who lives a life of gratitude to God as an example to others of where true joy is found. You know, friends, all of life is a gift. All life is a gift. Paul was right. Paul was right. We were, in fact, enslaved to the forces of evil, but God has freed us. But God has freed you. Now live like it. Live a life of joy and victory, knowing that Jesus has saved you. Be an example of God's grace in your life. Be an example who to other people who sees, but God works. But God changes lives for good. And be an example of a person who is set free. Shall we pray, Father, we come to you broken, fallen, inwardly focused. Lord, we thank you for Paul who diagnoses in pretty clear terms what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us and how to fix it. We thank you, Lord, for Paul, for his, his clarity, his directness, his pastoral concern for us. Help us to accept the grace of Jesus that saves us and be living examples of the power of God to change lives for good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.